You are listening to the Rooted Ministry Podcast, a conversation advancing gospel-centered ministry to youth. This episode was recorded at a workshop session at our 2018 conference in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about Rooted, visit our website at www.rootedministry.com. So I think as we begin talking about contextualization, oh, and I should say, by the way, this is a small group, which is awesome for workshops. So as I'm talking, by all means, interrupt me, ask clarifying questions. We'll see how long this takes. It's the first time I've done this particular talk in this order, so I'm not sure how long it's going to take me. But if we have time at the end, hopefully we'll have some more interaction, more questions. Um, And maybe I was even thinking we could try some contextualizing. I could give you some kind of case study scenarios and we could try it out together or not. Some introverts don't like that kind of stuff. (laughs) So we'll see how it goes. Um, But yeah, let's make this a conversation. So please interact with me as much as you'd like. Now, as we begin, here are some questions that I think set up our discussion hopefully well. Uh, How do you talk about scripture which we believe doesn't change. When I say we, I mean people who are maybe broadly evangelical or the kinds of folks that might be attracted to a rooted conference. How do you proclaim scripture in an ever-changing world? So if the world's always changing, culture's always changing, the Bible doesn't. How do you talk about it? Why is it that you can listen to a sermon or maybe you've preached a sermon that is doctrinally accurate and yet immensely boring? Why does that happen? Uh, Are you very good at talking about the gospel in ways that are not just clear, but also compelling with people who don't identify as Christians? Yesterday, uh, coming from the airport, I was in an Uber and the gentleman was very polite and very chatty and said, you know, what are you doing here? I said, you know, I work at a church and I'm coming to speak at a conference. And, oh, what are you speaking on? And I thought, I'm speaking on union with Christ. How am I going to talk to this guy about union with Christ? Right, so that's a, how do I talk about something like that to somebody who has no Christian, you know, lingo? He doesn't know the terms. Uh, can you do that? And then here's another question. Why are certain models of ministry really effective in one area and pretty ineffective in another? So you might talk about East Coast, West Coast, or North, South, or City, Suburb. But why is it that sometimes when you take one form of ministry and you transplant it to another place, it doesn't work? All of that, I think, raises the issues of what we call contextualization. And when we're talking about contextualization today, I think it's helpful for me to point out that we're talking about two things. One is the content of what you share, and the other are the modes in which you share it. And so that's different. You can have contextualized theology that is in its content very accessible, but in forms or in modes of communicating that are not which we'll talk about later. But that's what we're really meaning is both in content and in form, how is your ministry contextual? Okay. So if we were to start where I think we need to and ask for a definition, let's consider first what it isn't and then talk a little about what it is. Contextualization is not, as some critics have said, merely giving people what they want to hear. So contextualization is not always preaching on X whatever X is for your context, because that's what people really like. As an example, in New York, people actually love talking about social justice. The idea that we're supposed to work for the oppressed, the marginalized, that goes over really well in New York. And I can preach almost any sermon. And if I work that in, everybody's going to say, that was great, that was really powerful, you know. 
they don't really do that when I talk about sexuality and the ways in which I think God's word calls us to a sex ethic that is very conservative. So contextualization doesn't mean I just give them a lot of what they want to hear and I stay away from the stuff they don't. It's not contextualization. Contextualization is also not relativism, which is another way of saying the messenger, that is you, the communicator, and even the mode of communicating may need to flex, but the message never does. That is to say, we don't get to tamper with God's word. We don't get to change God's word in order to make it more palatable for people. It's easy to pick on him, but I think Rob Bell gave us the clearest example of that with his Love Wins book. What was he trying to do there? I mean, I... If you want to be really sympathetic, he's trying to take a very difficult doctrine and make it accessible for modern people. And I just want to say, we could talk about his doctrine. That's a different conversation. I just want to say he's trying to do what I think contextualization does, but he's doing it in the wrong way. So that's what we're talking about here is communicating effectively, but not changing the message. Right. So that leads us to ask, well, what is contextualization? And... (laughs) Uh, what I've done in the first bullet point is give you my definition, and then the longer one is my former bosses, uh, Tim's, Tim Keller's, who, by the way, you know, uh, Chelsea mentioned this, but I have the good fortune of working at a church where contextualization has been really valued. So much of what I've learned has just been from my church and from Tim's guidance. So I've given you some of his readings that you can do in your footnotes, which if you want to keep building on it, um, I just acknowledge my gratitude to him up front. But anyhow, I would define contextualization as presenting the biblical gospel to people in language that they can understand, and this is important, through appeals and arguments that land with them in force. I think the only thing that might be lacking in my definition is I should have said something about modes. So sometimes the modes of communicating is also important. I don't mean to say that we get to not preach. I think preaching is one of the main ways that God calls us to communicate the teaching of scripture, but how we do that, and even things like the kind of music we have, the kind of PowerPoints that we have, the kind of clothes we wear as we're preaching or communicating, all those are ways that we're contextualizing, whether you know it or not. Um, Tim has a slightly longer definition, which is really helpful. It's giving people the Bible's answers, which they may not want to hear, to questions that people are asking in a particular time and place, etc., Uh, The other thing I want to point out about contextualization, which you see there at the bottom, and this is really important, and you know this, but I'm just going to draw it out, is contextualization is much, much more fluid than it is static. That is to say, you don't contextualize and then you're done. You're always contextualizing and recontextualizing, and it's much more art than science, which is to say... There's no formula that if you kind of plug and play, even though I'm going to try to give you a process uh, at the end, there's no simple formula that if you just always do these things, then out comes a contextualized gospel. Um, it's artful. It changes person to person. It changes culture to culture. Um, and we'll talk about in a few minutes the fact that actually there's no such thing as a culture. And so sometimes even in your own youth group, uh, a particular illustration will land on some students forcefully and for others it'll be totally lost that's just an issue of contextualization in the midst of competing cultures so that's sort of a definition what we're going to do now is we're going to see it in the bible and then i'm going to give you some practical guidance for how you can start thinking about doing it any questions so far comments okay let's keep going 
So contextualization in the Bible, and here's what we mean when we talk about contextualization in the Bible. We mean on one hand, does the idea of contextualization, as I've just defined it, have any biblical warrant? That is to say, does the Bible expect us or call us to do contextualization? And then the second thing to ask is, if it does, are there any examples of contextualization in the Bible itself? So the first thing, does it fit in with biblical teaching? I think the answer is yes. And the main places I would point you to for an example of this is Romans 1 and 2 and 1 Corinthians 9. So let me just give you a couple of comments about Romans 1 and 2. And let me set it up like this. If you were to put on a continuum the ways in which we engage culture with the gospel, here's the continuum. On one hand, you have what you might call isolationism, sectarianism. Right. And I'll define that. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you would have what you might call syncretism, which is kind of an adapting to the culture. So isolation or sectarianism is the culture is bad and we avoid it. Uh, Syncretism is the culture is great and we're going to fit right in. My suggestion is that contextualization is actually aiming at something in the middle in which you recognize both the goodness and the badness of culture. And the reason I can do that, and Romans 1 and 2 is all about this, is by holding together our doctrine of creation and our doctrine of the fall. So the doctrine of creation means that God made everything, including human culture. He made every person. Every person, therefore, is made in the image of God, and every culture has, you might say, vestiges of God's goodness built into it. So on one hand... It's too simplistic as a Christian to say, I'm going to avoid culture because it actually reflects God's goodness. It's part of God's creation. But on the other hand, the doctrine of the fall tells me that creation, culture, people are broken and sinful and are thus Tower of Babel, right? Aiming within the culture to actually make a name for themselves, not to honor God. That's what Genesis 11 is about. So, (laughs) not sectarian, not syncretistic it's actually contextualization which is finding ways to appreciate the culture and at the same time to challenge it with the gospel so again we're not talking a ton about culture today but here are three questions that i would actually encourage you to think about using in your ministry if you were going to think about how do you help your kids frankly how do you start engaging culture the first thing to ask is what in my context or what in my culture reflects The goodness of God and needs to be embraced. So there's something here that can be embraced. But then you ask, what is opposed to the gospel and so needs to be rejected? And then last, what's more neutral and so can be updated, can be readapted? That's the questions of contextualization. As I'm bringing this message to my students, to my church, to whomever, what in the culture can I affirm and celebrate? Because it reflects God's common grace. What in the culture is actually so opposed to the gospel that any attempt to adapt to it is actually going to undermine the gospel itself? So that needs to be rejected. And then what are the things that are actually pretty neutral? And I would say a good example of this is music, forms of music. Many of you know that there are a lot of forms of music that throughout the history of the church were just looked at as that's the devil's music. And I'd say, no, probably that's more neutral. And so there are ways that we can do certain kinds of music that both celebrate the form, culture, but also 
are, you know, bringing kind of the message of the gospel to it. Not that you're always singing Christian music, but that the gospel is shaping how we think about those forms of expression, right? So that might be an example. So that's Romans 1 and 2. And uh, well, we'll unpack this more as we go, but that's enough there, I think. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, I would say, is actually a little bit more about the contextualizer. So this is Paul's great passage where he talks about, to the Jews, I became a Jew. To the Greeks, I became a Greek. I became all things to all people, so that by all means I might save some. What I think Paul's saying there is, on one hand, the gospel's offensive, and that's just built in. But on the other hand, there's so much about a particular culture that will unnecessarily alienate people from experiencing the message of God. And so I'm going to try to remove any cultural obstacles from my presentation of the gospel. And I'm going to flex. I'm not going to make them flex. Another way to say that, and this might uh, sound a little more bold than I mean it to, but I know in my own life, and maybe yours too, some of my worst sermons are my laziest, where I just kind of mailed it in. I just use my seminary terms and I just, I'm not flexing. I'm asking people to flex because I'm using language and terms and systems that I know because I've spent time studying it. But those folks who haven't had that same education are not really, you know, aware of and and, uh, privy to. And so that's that's a failure of me as the messenger to flex as far as I can to make these truths as palatable as I can to the people that I'm sharing with. Um, So we can talk more about that if you'd like. So that's what I think we see in Romans 1 and 2 and 1 Corinthians 9, both what it means to appreciate and challenge culture as well as what it means to prioritize our flexing rather than asking the people that we're sharing with to flex. Um, You know, this is dangerous to talk about because of colonialism, uh, but good missionaries flex. Bad missionaries ask people to flex. Um, that you know they're going to work with. Now, colonialism is a whole different thing about the ways in which that's like a really bad form of contextualization is like become British in order to you know experience the gospel. But anyhow, um, we okay? All right. <laughs> Truly, stick your hand up if anything is unclear or confusing, or you want to just comment on something. Um, <clears throat> There's three possibilities if you're silent. One is it's really clear. The other is it's totally confusing. Or the third is it's just after lunch. I do have a question then. Sure. Um, the, <coughs> we're working in a church culture where it's a pretty insider culture. Like everybody sort of same, speaks the same lingo. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're attracting people yeah. that are wanting deep teaching, mm-hmm. but then it doesn't seem like we're really reaching the immediate neighborhoods around us. It's more just like people coming in for good doctrinal teaching, but it's an insider language. Yeah. So I think that's a really good point, and this is going to take us maybe to the mission of the church. But my conviction, and to be honest, I don't really know, and I'm not saying that you feel this at all, but I don't know that I would give a lot of thought to the topic of contextualization if I didn't expect non-Christians to be coming to my church all the time. So in other words... Uh, can you contextualize for Christians? Absolutely. But this is especially important when thinking about how do we make the gospel clear and compelling to people who don't already believe what we believe. In addition to that, I would say that for Christians, what contextualization does is it moves you from preaching a sermon that was biblically accurate and totally forgettable Mm -hmm. to preaching sermons where somebody says, holy smokes, 
I never have seen it like that. And I don't know what this means, but it means something. That's contextualization, is you found a way to communicate that ancient truth in a form that's going to land on somebody with force. So you want to know the best, one of the best examples of this in the Bible? In 2 Samuel 12, were you at my, you were there earlier, right? So don't spoil it. Um, I'll just do the rest. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take over. You know, one time I was at a camp, a youth camp, and uh, it was two, uh, uh, they, they must have been in their 80s, these two guys using a felt board to do a, a sermon. And the guy, they, they tag teamed. He's like, I'll take you from here. And kind of jumped in. It was hilarious. So I've seen that before. But anyhow, um, I talked about this earlier in my Union with Christ talk because it, it it's part of this, but... Um, you know, in 2 Samuel 11, David sins with Bathsheba, right? You remember the story. He commits adultery. He murders uh, Bathsheba's husband. And then in 2 Samuel 12, Nathan comes to David, and he doesn't say, Exodus 20 says that you shall not commit adultery. You have broken God's law, and you're going to be judged. That's all true, and that's a sermon that many of us would preach. Adultery is bad. Don't do it. You're going to be judged. What Nathan does instead is he tells David a story. And he says, you know, there are two men in your kingdom. One's super rich. The other's poor. The super rich one has like a thousand sheep. The poor one only has one little sheep. Uh, it's like, you know, it's become a pet in the family. And one day the rich man gets a visitor. And instead of taking one of his many sheep to make a meal, he goes and steals the poor man's sheep. He kills that sheep. And... Uh, you know, the poor man loses little lammy and they're just devastated. And that's what happened. And so when David hears that, David goes, oh, my gosh, that man must die. And then Nathan says, you're the man. Like that story is your story. Now, what's Nathan done? Partly he's told him his own story, which is what we talked about earlier with the union. <laughs> but what he's done is he's contextualized a biblical truth. He's given David a way of hearing the message of the Ten Commandments, the story of Exodus, in a whole new way that lands on him with force, a kind of force that he would have never felt had Nathan just said, um, you know, you broke God's law, you're going to be punished. So that's what we're trying to do. Does that kind of help? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, go Sorry, for it. Want, the way I hear that, your question, partly, partly because of these, these struggles in my own church, is the need for us to contextualize not necessarily the gospel but the proclamation of the gospel to a church that doesn't want to hear that they need to be proclaiming the gospel right so my brothers and sisters sitting next to me in the pews we need to be sharing the gospel with our neighbors we need to be living the gospel uh, amongst our co-workers so so there's a contextualization that needs to happen there because if you just directly confront them with you need to go save your neighbor or you need to be witnessing to your, your colleague, there, there's going to be this bristling because um, we're very comfortable in our pews. Uh, so it's got me thinking there's a contextualization that needs to happen within the culture of our church, which is a little bit distinct from what we're, ta from what we're talking about here, but it, mm -hmm. it's got me thinking in that same direction. Yeah. yeah. Also, I feel like I've heard um, Keller talk about contextualization <clears throat> as a way to form your church. Hmm. In saying that your friends are welcome here, they may not believe what we believe, but I'm going to talk to them in a way that they're going to feel comfortable yeah. and that their deepest questions are going to be addressed. Yes. So I feel like that's powerful. You know, thinking about our students, that's a powerful way. You know, we may not have a ton of kids who don't know the mm -hmm. Lord, yeah. but we can signal to them, the ones that are to the kids that are coming, hey, this is a place 
for your friend. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Just and this is part of why I think contextualization especially helps us think about engaging folks who don't identify as Christians. Is you know, some would say, well, no non-Christians come to my church, and so the if you believe that maybe your church should be a place that's attracting folks who don't identify as Christians to come and hear the gospel and experience Christ in that way, uh, what you're saying is right. Um, you preach in such a way that the people in the audience, the congregation are like, oh my gosh, I wish Tom was here because yeah. you know I tried to tell Tom about this, but I don't know how. My pastor just did. Yeah. I wish I wish I would have brought them. And so that's how you lead your ministry. And and that's that's only going to happen if you're contextualized, if you're helping people see how the gospel works on the ground in real life mm-hmm. in powerful forms. Yeah, and hopefully they're growing in that themselves at the same time. Like, oh, I, that's what I could say. Right. That makes sense. And you're, you're, you're showing them how to do it. That's exactly right. Yep. I have a question about kind of that idea. Like, oh, I try to communicate that, but this person communicates it so much better. And how to avoid, um, like, how to do contextualization in a way that isn't, like, maybe moralistic or behavior modification, like especially when we're talking about like teens and kids who tend to hear everything through the lens of like, oh, this person is an authority telling me something to do. Yeah. Um, how, what are like specific ways or like that you could address that that kind of risk, I guess? Hmm. Um, help me, I, I, understand, I feel like I understand the question except the contextualization part, because mm-hmm. I think what you're talking about is really how do you preach to kids in such a way that you maintain the gospel of grace mm-hmm. and also kind of honor some of the what we call moral imperatives of the New Testament. So, but help me help me connect the contextualization of that. I mean, I think I think that hits it pretty well. But like, I I tend to think of a lot of like resources and um, like discipleship happens with teens in like application. Yeah. Um, and so I guess the distinction between application and contextualization. Oh. I think there is a, a distinction there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but figuring out like maybe language around making sure that we're walking away saying like contextualization isn't like you should behave this way. Yeah. But this is who God is and what yeah. his word says. Yeah. How, okay. do we, how do we do that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, maybe this gets at an answer, um, and we could spend a lot of time just talking about that. But I was doing some youth camp conference uh, right after Inside Out came out. You know, the the cartoon movie. That's what it's called, right? Inside Out. Um, and so it's one thing for me to stand up in front of the group and say, uh, "Christ laid down His life for you. Christ died for you. So you should do that for other people." But the moment I said, "Do you remember Bing Bong?" Am I, is this a spoiler for anybody? Have you not seen the movie? <laughs> do you remember Bing Bong? And everybody's faces just light up. Because what, what does Bing Bong do in that particular movie? He does an act of self-sacrifice where he gives himself for Riley. Um, and everybody's like, whoa. And I'm like, guys, Jesus, like this is a cartoon. Like, but it works. <laughs> like that, that is a way of taking that truth. And I don't know that I would necessarily call that application. Yeah. It's a form of communicating that message just through a, a form that happened to have some power and appeal at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, is that perfect? Probably not. There's probably a lot of better ways to do it, but, th- but that's kind of what I'm thinking about. Application would then be, and therefore, what are the ways that you would then go and like Christ and bing bong, you know, go and, and try to give yourself for others? So mm-hmm. that's kind of how I think about it. So it, it sounds to me, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm just trying to, I don't know. I'm not used to so my brain thinks about things differently, right? So 
when you're contextualizing a truth, you're trying to communicate an unfamiliar truth to somebody in a way that's familiar to them so that you elicit sympathy in them to essentially buy into what you're saying, right? Like I think of like a, a every powerful illustration, like you just does that. Yes. You know? Like yes. When you give an illustration, it elicits sympathy in me and my ear is now, I mean, I'm, I'm engaged. Yes. I might not have no idea what you're talking about until you hit that. Mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So, so yes, absolutely. In my, and, and so, um, you know, uh, if you want to do some like really technical reading about this, volume 10 of the works of Jonathan Edwards is about his preaching. And do you know that Edwards basically never used a sermon illustration? Like he never said, you know, in the play that you saw, he never used sermon illustrations. He just spoke in very vivid language. But what he said, the ultimate goal of preaching more than anything else is to make real the accepted truth that people already believe. So in other words, you believe Christ died for you and yet you're still as anxious, you're still as fretful, you're still as selfish as people who don't believe that. Why? Because you believe, but you don't. You don't really believe. And so what he said, my job as a preacher, is to make real to them what they say they believe, what they say they subscribe to. That's contextualization, in, in a, I think, in a very real way. What Edwards probably didn't do a lot of, because he didn't need to, was think about how do I do that in a non-Christian culture? How do I do that for people who don't assume Christianity? Which I think is where we get the the idea of contextualization a bit more explicitly. Going back to what you were talking about as it relates to contextualizing in the church context, that's highly effective. Totally. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, all right, let me keep pressing us on here, but this discussion is super helpful. You guys are giving me good stuff to think about. <laughs> um, biblical examples of it. The most important is Christ. Uh, Christ chose not to remain abstract deity. He took on flesh. He became a person, time and space, a culture. He was the subject of various political movements. He had to travel. He had to go from place to place. He is, incarnation is a form of contextualization. Um, I would also say that, you know, the day of Pentecost, uh, the spirit comes down. I don't have this in your notes, but the spirit comes down. To what end? So that all the people hear the gospel in their own language. It's almost as if God says, I've created the church to show you that I speak your language, not that you have to learn mine. Um, I think that's what the church is. And Laman Sane, who is an African theologian, has always talked about how translation is one of the most revolutionary things that the church has ever done. The fact that we take God's word and we translate it. He points out that Christianity is the only world religion that is transmitted not in the language and the culture of its original founder. Mm-hmm. That is remarkably contextual. That is remarkably saying, hey, the church is going to go out and find ways to preach this to you in your language. Uh, so so Christ, even the story of the Bible, uh, you have an example in 1 Corinthians 1, the gospel there. Paul is talking about how the gospel is a stumbling block to some. It's foolishness to others, right? So different offenses, but it appeals to both. Um, and then if you flip the page, right, Paul, uh, Acts 13 and 17, just give you two examples. When he's speaking to Jews, he starts his sermon by talking about the story of Israel. He's quoting the Bible. But on Acts 17, he's talking to Greeks. He's talking to pagans, educated, non-religious people, at least not religious in the sense of ancient Judaism. And so he doesn't start by talking about the story of Israel. He start, starts with talking about creator God. And then he quotes their own poets to them. He doesn't quote Moses. 
But he culminates both in the resurrection. So he's not preaching a different gospel, but he's going about it in different ways. Um, and I think Paul's are really helpful. Sometimes people say, when you talk about contextualization, you almost only talk about Paul. I think Paul's helpful because he's actually engaging lots of different cultures. Most of the New Testament writers that are not Paul are primarily working in Jewish context. So there's a little bit more that can be assumed. Paul's actually going to Jew and Gentile, so he's he's better at showing us what contextualization looks like. So, okay. Anything there? So that's just kind of a biblical overview really fast. Anything there before we move on to what I hope are some tools, some tips for you guys to just try on, and maybe they'll help your ministry a little bit. Anything I can clarify so far? Okay. Well, let's keep going. Um, we'll see how long this takes. Uh, and then we'll have some time for conversation. Um, <clears throat> so I think I'm going to give you three. The third one is... Um, Longer, so let's see how we do. Uh, the first tip: <clears throat> just recognize that contextualization is inevitable, so you should be intentional about it. That is to say, there is absolutely no such thing as a non-contextualized gospel. Uh, there is no way to preach the truths of Christianity in a way that's all historical. Every way we talk about the gospel, every form in which we use, is in some degree contextualized. So the first thing that you're going to need to do if you're going to be effective in contextualizing is just acknowledge that. Just say, hey, I'm already making decisions about how I'm proclaiming God's truth. Am I intentional about it? Am I doing it well? So some questions to ask. Am I, in some ways, over-contextualizing? That is to say, am I trying so hard to fit in and to be kind of, uh, well, hip, you know, uh, Contextualization is not hipness um, <clears throat> that have actually <clears throat> lost faithfulness to the gospel. So that's one question. Another would be, am I under contextualizing? Am I so accurate that I'm just, you know, eh, eh, but I'm boring. Uh, nobody's nobody's saying, hey, that that sermon really moved me. Like nobody, nobody's ever saying that. Um, maybe you have to ask, am I just not placing a premium on communicating to these people in ways that are going to be kind of readily understood? <clears throat> And then the third thing here, which I think is the most important that I've learned, is probably to some degree you are thinking about how you're communicating, but are you asking the question about unintended consequences? Um, so I'll give you an example. One day at Redeemer, uh, after a service, I was greeting people and talking with people, and this woman came up who did not fit the sort of demographic of our church, but who absolutely fit the demographic of New York City. She came up to me and she said, hey, uh, it was good to be here, but I have to ask you, why is everybody so upset? And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, normally when I go to church, like people are kind of dancing and their hands are up and everybody's singing and you guys are just, you know, just kind of you know, like this. And I said, oh, uh, OK. Um, and what I had to explain to her was, you know, when our church started, we wanted to be a church that was going to be really effective in hopefully reaching people who don't believe in Christianity. Uh, and so you could imagine, I said to her, that if you walked into a church, if you never darkened the doors of a church before and you walk in and the lights are low and everybody's swaying um, or dancing or whatever, like that's going to be a little jarring. That's going to be a hard thing to kind of feel like I can fit in here. Um, but what I realized is that while we were then aiming at one group of people, we actually completely missed another. Well, I was prioritizing mostly white and Asian middle to upper middle class New Yorkers who went to 
great schools and have urban professional jobs. Um, and there was a whole group of people that in aiming at those ones, I missed those ones. Now, that's a whole other question to say, uh, can you effectively reach all kinds of people at the same time? It's a different conversation. My point, though, is that you often have unintended consequences. So when I wear a suit on Sunday morning, I'm saying something about the kind of person that I expect to be there. When I quote the New York Times, I'm saying something about the kind of person and the kind of reading they do as I'm trying to make my appeals. Is that bad? Not necessarily, but just be mindful of it. And you're kind of always asking, how is this going to land on so-and-so? How is this going to land on so-and-so? And you contextualize for them. You don't contextualize for yourself. Um, I remember when I was in seminary and I happened to work at Redeemer at the time. You know, Tim, everybody loves Tim Keller and rightly so, I guess. But, you know, people would, uh, I'd be in a preaching class, uh, you know, and people would be, we'd be doing like, you know, a week on illustrations. And I'd hear people um, using illustrations. I'm like, that sounds really familiar. That seems really familiar. It's just Tim stuff. And, you know, I was, I talked to Tim about it and he said, you know, I'm always happy to help people, um, uh, you know, you know, kind of get ideas for their preaching. But contextualization is nothing if it's not eminently personal. So in other words, it has to flow out of your specific context. And so a lot, what I, all I'm saying here is that contextualization is not, here's how I would like to communicate the gospel, but here are the ways that it would be most effective for the people that I'm serving and working with. So be intentional about it and think about your unintended consequences. Um, the second thing here, contextualization that's anchored in scripture, but it's informed by culture. This is a way of saying, and I'll be brief here, it's great to see a dialogue between going to the text and then going to culture and back and forth. Now, let me say, scripture never gets corrected, but Christians and their interpretation of scripture can be challenged and corrected. So what you want to do is you want to have people and avenues in your life that you're actually able to listen to the culture. So that might mean just your pastoral care for your students. Hey, you know, last week we talked about justification. Uh, how did that, how did it land on you? Did it work? Did you get it? Um, let, speak, let them speak to you. Um, you know, you need to know what are the kinds of, again, this is not hipness, but you need to know what are the kinds of things that your people are consuming. Um, what kind of movies, what kind of books, what kind of stories. Uh, I'd never read Harry Potter, and then I started doing youth work. And I was like, okay, I need to read Harry Potter. And it was really good. I'm glad I did. Mm-hmm. But for me, in my particular youth ministry, I had one student who told me that she read Harry Potter like so consistently that she couldn't keep her eyes open, so she'd cover one eye and read and then switch, you know, like this. And so my point there is, right, this was important for our youth group at that time. And so part of how I was able to try to think about what's what's shaping them, what's forming them, and then let me enter into that and see how the gospel can embrace, adapt, challenge, etc. In addition, do you see there on the bottom of page three, I think the last thing I'd want to mention about this particular point is there is no such thing as a monolithic culture. So in a place like New York, there are lots of cultures represented. That's probably true where you are. So... Don't just think, you know, oh, I hang out with the students that I like. I kind of know what makes them tick, so I'm good. Culture is always changing, and there's all kinds of cultures, usually in any particular city, uh, at least cities. I'm not quite sure about uh, suburban context, but um, culture is usually not monolithic. Yeah. I, I would say the way I'm running into that in my youth group is I have a bunch of kids. I youth pastor at an Anglican church, and I have a bunch of kids that have started coming to our youth group from other churches. 
of varying denominations. Mm. Um, and so it's got me thinking about how can I share the message that I want to share without freaking out them or their parents by talking about, you know, the real presence in communion or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, Did you just say you're an Anglican? I am. I'm so I'm meeting so many Anglicans today. I'm so I stoked. I heard that a bunch of us were, were in here with you. Yes. In the first workshop. I'm so pumped by this. I was telling somebody earlier, I was like, I never get to interact with Anglicans. So we don't have a lot of um, evangelical Anglicans in the city. So maybe maybe you guys know of some that you could put me in touch with. I'll think about that. But I'm sure there are. I'd love to meet them. I'd love to meet them. But that takes us far afield from where we are. Yeah. <laughs> No, that's okay. It was, I was bringing us there. Um, let me just say this. And, you know, one of the things that I was trying to do for this workshop was try to give you something practical. So do you remember earlier I said contextualization is not a formula? Here's my attempt at giving you a formula. But it's not a, it's not a foolproof formula, and that is to say there's a lot of art that even needs to be applied in this formula. But Bill Edgar, in his book Reasons for the Heart, offers a fourfold way of thinking about engaging culture or doing contextualization. So what I'm going to do to end is I'm going to walk you through what these things mean, and I'm going to give you an example of it. Okay? So point of contact says, because of common grace, I have an assured point of contact with every human being. That is, they actually know God. They're made in his image. They can suppress that truth, but they know him. And all of culture, in some way or another, reflects God at some level, in some way. So I have an assured point of contact with every person. The first job of the contextualizer is to ask, how does whatever I'm thinking about theologically or in scripture find a point of contact with that person or with that culture? What can I affirm? How can I so understand that person's position that I could restate it in a way that they would go, yeah, that's right. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm feeling. That's what I believe. Get that point of contact. Then you do what's called disclosure. And you start to try to show how on its own terms or in its own system, it doesn't actually work. And the analogy we always use for this is the idea that if you're trying to build a mountain through a road, you do not stick TNT on the side of the mountain and just blow it up, right? It just chips off the edge. But the way in which you actually bore through something is you actually go deeply into it and then you blow it up from the inside. That sounds far too militaristic. But the idea is... Disclosure is saying, I understand your position, your worldview, your particular perspective, and I can affirm a lot of it. But I'm actually going to now, from the inside, actually assuming your position, show you how on its own terms it doesn't quite work. It actually falls apart on its own merit. Then homecoming is to actually say, but let me show you how the gospel actually brings happy ending to the story that you're living in. So the gospel is actually the fulfillment that you were always looking for, but you never knew. And then plausibility is this idea that says, not only is the gospel true, but isn't the gospel beautiful? Not, not, not only uh, it's true, but you want it to be true because of how stunning it is and what it would produce. Okay, so let me give you an example. I used to use this with my students all the time. Do you remember St. Augustine's Confessions where he talks about stealing the pear? Has anybody read that? Okay, I, I'll, I, I'll give you a little bit of the context. St. Augustine, when he was a teenager, right, he's a student, uh, recounts how early in his life, as a, as a young person, he went with a group of his friends and they went stealing pears. Uh, you know, these are the, the boys in your youth group that sneak out to the girls' cabin, right? That's, that's what they're doing. Stealing pears. And, um, 
you know, Augustine kind of reflects on it and he says, why did I do this? You know, this sin, why is it that I actually uh, stole pears with my friends? And he says, it wasn't because I was hungry. I had plenty of food. I don't even like pears, he says. It wasn't because of a particular craving. He says, it was because I wanted the acceptance of the company that I was in. And he has a famous line. He says, alone, I would never have done it. Alone, I would never have done it. Okay, that's the story. How do we? How would we take that and sort of say to Augustine, "Here's how the gospel meets you." Now he did it himself, but if we were if he was in our youth group and we were counseling him, here's what you would say: point of contact. Augustine, you want acceptance. You want a community. You want people who see you and who love you, and who take you on your own terms. That is deeply biblical. That is exactly what it was like in the Garden of Eden before sin. Uh, Adam and his wife were naked. They were fully vulnerable and they were totally loved. I want that too. You want that. We want that. And yet, disclosure, don't you notice how when you actually do things that you know you're you're not supposed to do, which you knew you weren't supposed to do this, you actually didn't really feel more whole. You felt more isolated. You felt more alienated, not only from the people that you were doing it with, but you actually felt more isolated from yourself. You felt like you were less you than you've ever been before. Right, that's disclosure. But consider how the gospel actually says you are at the same time totally seen and totally loved. Mm -hmm. And that can bring you into community where actually you have brothers and sisters and you long to be together, but sometimes it doesn't go well. But you have an assurance in Christ that is actually far more fundamental. And then finally, plausibility. What would it look like, Augustine? if not just you, but if everybody in our youth group actually had that acceptance in Christ, what kind of community would we be? Right. So that's like an imperfect way to go through that. And that's what you're always trying to do, in my opinion, if you were to, if you were to try to get some, a, a, a process for how to contextualize, contextualize. So how would you use this? Uh, if you're preparing a sermon, maybe you just look at it and you say, did I affirm something? Did I affirm a human longing that we all have, whether or not we're Christians? Did I show why or how on its own terms it doesn't quite work? And then have I applied the gospel appropriately and really created a sense of plausibility while we really would like this to be true? So I'm going to stop there. I think we have about five minutes or so for questions, comments, feedback about this, and then we'll wrap up. If you have them, if not, we'll just be done. It strikes me that this would be easier in a, like the smaller the group gets, uh, the, the easier contextualization becomes. And part of the difficulty, um, especially in a place like New York or LA, where the larger the group gets, the more multicultural the group gets, the much more difficult this becomes. And so I'm curious how you've dealt with that in a large, uh, diverse context like like your church. Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, <clears throat> I certainly agree. And I would say there are probably like broad cultural trends, right? If I'm preaching a sermon at our church, um, it's hard to get as specific as I might like, but there are things that I think are generally true of our congregation. So in New York, uh, people's identity is so tied to their work. That's generally true. And so there is an area where I can try to help them, you know, see how the gospel works. Um, I'm able, though, in my pastoral counseling, my one-on-ones, to go much deeper and to try to apply more surgically like a surgeon would. Um, 
so yeah, absolutely. The thing that I haven't figured out, to be honest, and this is just an area that I'm still working on, is if the church is meant to be not only multi-ethnic, mm-hmm. but multicultural, then how do you contextualize effectually to multiple cultures or socioeconomic classes? Yeah. I've, I've found that that's more challenging, and I'm working on that, that is, as evidenced by the uh, very kind lady that came up and said, hey, why is nobody having fun here? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm realizing this is just a different... Uh, yeah cultural experience than you're used to and some kind of people really like it but others are kind of put off by it and so how do i how do i think about that so but yeah i'm with you i wonder if some of that just comes from our <coughs> position of having it's not necessarily we're majorities but that people have a pick of where to go whereas mm-hmm. in other some other countries they don't have a pick of which church flavor they like they, mm, that's a great point so i don't know if that's just because of our wealth of opportunities. Yeah, wow, well, that's a really interesting point, right? Do people in persecuted countries need, do they feel any need to talk about contextualization? Or is this just a luxury for us? That's a really interesting point. We, yeah. uh, we, had, a, we had a family leave a church, our, our church, um, and he's a really good friend of mine, and uh, he's much older than me because I still have like my huggies on. But um, I had asked him, because he was complaining about a lot of issues in the church, and I was actually kind of thinking what you were, because one of the questions I asked him was like, okay, so like, if there was no other like gospel preaching church in the area, and this was the only gospel preaching church, how would you handle the issues that you have with this church differently? Um, because like, I think even like for me, I grew up in a multi-ethnic home. Half of my family is from Caracas, Venezuela, and then the other of us are just Anglo white folks. Hmm. You know? And um, one of the things I realized through my relationships with them was how unwilling I was to like learn the benefits of their culture mm-hmm. and allow it to enhance my current mm-hmm. human existence. Because you're like Latin people are just way more fun than white people <laughs> generally. Like, and I'm saying like they just man like my sister's wedding was amazing. We did not sit down. We danced the whole time. You know, like it, it's just it was real. But like. The ability for us to have fun and flourish in that environment was out of an appreciation for a culture that was not our own. Yeah. Right. And so it, it makes me wonder if like persecuted churches are mature enough to recognize that, and so they they appreciate and benefit from one another's differences rather than trying to like in, like like export their own cultural understanding onto another person's life and say if you're not here then this lacks significance, right? It's the same person that says, oh, well, like, and then I, I'm not, I want to be charitable. I don't think this woman was saying that, but if, if our posture is, oh, if we don't see dancing, this church is less authentic, mm-hmm. well, then we've immediately put ourselves in a position to not appreciate what's going on, even if you're, you know, not dancing or whatever, you know? Yeah, totally. So. Yeah. Yeah, that, and as I hear you say that, I, I go um, back to Lam and Sane's stuff, his book, Whose Religion is Christianity, it's pretty short and really worth reading if you're interested in some of this. But he just basically says, you know, the pattern of Christianity is such that a person doesn't become less, fill in the blank, whatever their ethnicity is, by becoming Christian. They actually become more it. Yeah. And so the community then of Christians is able to be far more beautiful and diverse precisely because of the gospel, not in spite of it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm with you. And is there a sense in which we're also a little bit of a third culture, too, of like... Or a, 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 where I'm thinking third culture in um, is it um, Ephesians 2 neither Jew nor Gentile but you're one in Christ 
is that the third there, there's with the, the things that divide us combine and become something better than separate I don't know sure yeah I mean when I hear third culture I can't help but think of missionaries and third culture kids yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah. I'm like I wait I wait should I say yes to that I don't know <laughs> um, so but that's it I hear what you're saying and sure you said this is the first time you did this yeah, I mean, I've talked about contextualization before, but this is the first in this order. Good, good so, oh, thank you. That's very kind. Thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to talk. I mean, this I'm not asking for pity, but it's hard to talk about contextualization when I don't know all of your context, because it would be so much better if I could give you lots of examples and we could get more granular. So that's the work that you're going to have to go and do, you know, in the various ministries that you're in. So um, I'm going to go ahead and wrap us up. Uh, maybe I could pray for you and then um, we'll be we'll be all set. I think you have a break now, which is kind of cool. So, oh, yeah, right. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this session that we've had together. I thank you for these friends, these brothers and sisters. And I ask that you'd help them uh, help all of us to continue to be faithful in the ministry that you've called us to. We confess all the ways that we don't serve you as we ought, and we ask for your grace. And Lord, we thank you that even as we ask, uh, we we know that we are accepted in the beloved. So we thank you for that and pray that that reality would now fuel us to even deeper degrees of service for your glory and for the good of the ministries that you've called us to. Um, Continue to bless this conference. May it be an inspiring time, a refreshing time, a time for community building and networking. And uh, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Rooted Podcast, where we hope to communicate the truths of the gospel and apply those truths to youth ministry. We would love for you to check out our website, where we publish articles daily geared towards both youth ministers and parents. You will also find resources and more information about our conferences, regional events, and more at www.rootedministry.com.